Hey, Trumpcast listeners, what you're about to hear is a teaser for today's show. That's right. We've made one out of every four Trumpcast episodes exclusive to Slate Plus subscribers. To hear this and all episodes ad-free, sign up for Slate Plus. It's only $35 for the first year. You can manage it. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. And thanks very much for listening. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I am increasingly obsessed with this photograph of Kimberly Guilfoyle. Of course, you all know her as the consort to the president's eldest son, Don Jr., very proper and normal person, who left his wife and five children in 2018 and came out as Guilfoyle's escort around the same time. But the photo of Guilfoyle I'm obsessed with is not from 2018 or even 2020, and definitely not from Monday night at the Republican National Convention, where she shouted to the heavens like Medea about something apocalyptic and terrifying and worthy of extreme volume, I'm sure, but something I didn't get the content of because I watched with the sound off and only the parodies. Anyway, quickly, I turned to this other photo from way back in 2004. It's part of a glossy, expensively shot spread in Harper's Bazaar of what the magazine called at the time the new Kennedys, Camelot. There she is, the new Jackie Kennedy, Kimberly Guilfoyle herself, looking just like she does today, if slightly more mammalian. She's lying on what looks like a very scratchy but opulent Tabriz rug, surrounded by antique chairs I can't identify, but let's just say Louis Cator's, and the room is entirely Trump-esque. Though through the window, you curiously see not Manhattan, not D.C., but San Francisco Bay. And there's Don Jr., who's holding Guilfoyle in his arms while they're both on this scratchy, multi-million dollar Tabriz rug, looking slightly weird. Actually, the more I look at Don Jr., yeah, okay, he's clean-shaven, doesn't have the beard of now, but he's got the same haircut. Maybe his hair is lighter And then here I am zeroing in on his face and it is not Don Jr. at all. If the new Jackie of 2004 is the beautiful Kimberly Guilfoyle in a shoulderless black dress on that scratchy rug, the new Jack Kennedy of 2004 was Gavin Newsom, Democrat, then the mayor of San Francisco and married to Ms. Guilfoyle. Now he's the governor, Gavin Newsom, and you know this. He's the governor of California, the bluest of blue states, while his now ex-wife, Camelot, it couldn't last, is stepping out with Don Jr. in the reddest of red events at the Republican National Convention. And yet what hasn't changed in two decades is that the ruling class still makes porny love to each other on Ann Getty's scratchy Tabriz rug in their Louis XIV penthouses, and Kimberly Guilfoyle is apparently always at their side. So that was around 400 words I just gave you on this photo, and it's worth at least a 1,000. So get into Google and find this newsome Guilfoyle photograph, and I'll leave the last 600 words to you to produce. What in hay, though, I ask you, has changed since 2004 if a Democrat, Newsom, and a Trumpite, Don Jr., can pose in the same hideous-style room with the same woman and the same reigning conceit of glamour? And how can we change 
give the Botox a rest. Stop being preserved in amber so that this photo comes to represent finally an obsolete set of aspirations, as obsolete as an image of Marie Antoinette or one of those fat cats of the 19th century in waistcoats. This, in many ways, is the topic of my conversation with Kurt Anderson today. Kurt is the host of the late, great Studio 360 and author of a zillion books, most recently, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, and Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America. That's the recent book, and it is currently a New York Times bestseller. I'm going to ask him about everything, including that hideous photograph. Kurt, welcome to Trumpcast. Happy to be back. I am so glad you're here. And I admit, I had to read this book quickly, but it was easy to bolt down because you don't really want to look away. It is a shipwreck that you're describing, but it's familiar, and yet your descriptions make it new again. And that is the fate of America over the past, I'm going to say, I think you do it about 40 years. Well, I do a quick American history for a couple of few centuries in a couple of chapters, but really the the focus begins. We, we you know, uh, if we're a screenplay, we would say 1970 exterior. You know, it, 1970 to to 2000 is the meat of it. But I go on to the present day and and talk about what I always thought was the thing that just happened, which is to say how unequal and insecure and and bad our system got for most of its people. But then I, I realized, no, it was a lot more like a strategic class war than I ever realized, partly because I was doing fine, not being on the side of the people fighting the class war, but certainly benefiting from the class war, you know? Yeah. So this book, Evil Geniuses, is a kind of companion or an answer to or works in concert with your last book, Fantasyland. So give us the Fantasyland thesis and then tell us how it rolls into the thesis of the new book. I shall do that. <laughs> uh, Fantasyland was, I mean, both of them began with thoughts I began having around the turn of the century. It's like, wow, how did America get this way? And, and, and then how did America get this way? The fantasy land, what happened was how did we become so, A, crazily religious as opposed to simply religious as a country and so unlike the rest of the rich world in that? And, and, and more generally, how did this I can believe anything I want super subjectivity get so out of control? And, and I had just finished, when I started saying, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to try to do a book about this, I just finished a novel, much of which was set in the late 60s, and I thought, oh, maybe, I think it's a lot of it started in the late 60s, which I do think, and which I wrote about, but then I realized, no, it's, it's a lot bigger and older and longer standing than that, this American, I will invent myself, I will invent a country, I will think anything I wish, despite what the elite thinks, obviously goes back a lot longer. So it's the, and, and America invented modern entertainment. And so the kind of falsehoods, fictions of entertainment uh, jibed nicely with Americans' natural predisposition to believe falsehoods and delusions if they were entertaining enough. So that's what Fantasyland is about, how, how that piece of our national character, which was a kind of chronic condition, became an acute illness and went out of control over the last 40 or 50 years. But then as I finished it and as I was doing all that research, and then as I was talking about it to people and realizing, well, that's just really half the story of how we got so fucked. 
that the other half of the story is this very, not this kind of ambient irrationalism, but this very deliberate effort by these very rational people that, you know, marching after Milton Friedman and, and economic libertarianism changed the whole political economy and how people thought about the market and 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 what was important and that profits were all that were important and, and changed enough Americans' minds about that thing that it changed the system and, and made us yet again, unlike any other rich country, and how unfairly we we treat 75% of our fellow citizens in economic terms. So that's how they they do. They are, you know, companion volumes really about about how we went from a country that seemed when I was a child, when I was young, fairly equal and was and fairly contented and boats rising together. And yes, people were religious, but they didn't try to bring it into the public sphere all the time to this mess we're in now. Yeah. I mean, and you also, and these are central questions for Trumpcast that have been, you know, is Trump and Trumpism crazy or crazy like a fox? And it's always been a question for the show. And Fantasyland has sort of the crazy part, or it's like profusion of superstitions and supernatural beliefs, QAnon kind of stuff. And then this book is, I don't know if it was any less fun to write, but these are less... Um, amusing people, at least the characters that populate the book that that are, as you say, actually highly rational and doing something that was difficult to detect, that were kind of surgical operations in the 80s and 90s toward what we were, you know, told frighteningly was deregulation. And as a as a kid in the 80s, I just couldn't be very afraid of deregulation. Well, exactly. Just, you know, when my mother told me breaking up, at, you know, at the big bell at AT&T was the worst thing that ever happened. And I just, you know, I couldn't quite keep my eyes open. Like, yeah. didn't we have the Russians to fight? And you were a bored child by all this tedium. And I was a bored uh, young man uh, with all this change. It was death by a thousand cuts. I mean, there was this big idea of, oh, let's make America like it used to be, like a small town, like Bedford Falls, right? Ronald Reagan will lead us there. And then not enough people, I mean, I, let's stipulate, I didn't vote for Reagan. I always voted for Democrats. I was a liberal. But we didn't quite look at the fine print of how this was going to be done. Nor, oh yes, of course, Reaganism was all about gigantic, unprecedented tax cuts for the rich and big business right away. So that was a big thing, but they didn't end Social Security and Medicare or 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 stop uh, environmental protection regulations. So it wasn't like, yeah, it's not, what, it's not so bad, right? But what they did in so many ways that I was unaware of, like as you were with deregulation, uh, they 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 did so many things that I really didn't even until I went back to do this research, I hadn't realized that it was this this war on many 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 theaters of war and many fronts and and special ops and and in so many ways of changing laws and regulations and codes and norms. We talk about norms so much these days and being broken, but but my gosh, in a generation and certainly in two, they just they transformed this economy and didn't end the New Deal. We still have a minimum wage law; just minimum wages are now half what they were. We still have Social Security, but they just it doesn't rise as much as it used to. So they didn't end the New Deal, but they ended the kind of American consensus that the New Deal and a kind of social democracy was a good thing. Hi again, Virginia here. 
So sorry to interrupt, but that's the end of our Slate Plus teaser. But you can't stop listening now. If you want to hear the rest of this ad-free and all of our podcasts ad-free, all you need to do is go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus right now and join Slate Plus for only $35 for the first year. $35 for the first year, not month, not week, year. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus.